Okay, everyone should have a handout. This is week one, the gift of desperation. What happens when we run out? And I feel like I'm like playing Red Rover. <laughs> okay, so I'll try and look back and forth like this. You know, singing in the rain, you know that musical when she has the pearls and she keeps doing it? That's what I feel like. All right, so with your hand out, we're going to play a game. I love games, and I love words, so this is a word game. This doesn't take long. Stay with me or just quit playing, all right? Okay, so blank number one, in your own opinion or experience, what is an overused word? Nope, write it down. But I will ask you later what you write down. Next one. This is a word association. It's going to take you one second to answer on your paper. But I love that y'all answered out loud. That's going to come back to help us in a minute. What is the first word that comes to your mind when I say desperate? Write it down. Number three takes a little bit longer, which is why you have more blanks, and I'll give you more time. Number three is kind of picturesque. If the presence or absence of artistic talent we're not an issue. In other words, you can draw like Leonardo. All right. Describe how you would draw or depict the word desperate. Just jot down a couple of phrases. I'll give you more time on this one. Then look up at me when you're done so that I know I can keep going. I'll look. Okay. All right. I see some eyes. All right. One more word association. If you are not sitting here in church, so do not write down the word Jesus, God, Holy Spirit, or Bible. Okay? <laughs> what is the first word that comes to your mind when I say miracle? And the last one, again, you have more lines for this. I'll give you more time. I want you to, to define briefly miracle. Like, if you were trying to describe that to somebody, define it for him. What does miracle mean? And the last question, I didn't give you a blank, and I don't want, it's not meant to be a trick question. I don't want you to look at your neighbor and tell her your answer, but we have to start here. Why do we study God's word. Why are we here? Why are we doing the miracles of Jesus? I want you to stay with me here. And I want us to start with the knots. We are not studying God's word to amass more biblical knowledge as if there were to be some heavenly trivia game someday. The answer is Jesus. That's the one you need to get in. Okay? So we're not just amassing information here. And we are also not studying God's word in order to obey. And some of you might go, oh, heretical, closing your book, you're walking out, hear me out. If I am studying God's word to obey, to obey, 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 that's a, the weirdest word to say, by the way, obey, 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 obey. With my personality in particular, that would breed legalism so quickly into my life and could cause me to become prideful and self-righteous, and then those times that I don't obey could just overwhelm me. So that's not why I study God's Word. I study God's Word to know the author. 
That's why I studied God's word. That's why we're studying the miracles of Jesus, to know God better. Because to know him is to love him, to love him is to obey him, and to obey him is to live as Jesus did. Now, I got this straight from scripture. Yeah, I made it up, but not really. I got it from scripture. Listen to these two scriptures. All the scriptures will, will be on your handout for you. 1 John 2, 3 through 6 says, And we can be sure that we know him if we obey his commandments. If someone claims, I know God, but doesn't obey God's commandments, that person is a liar and is not living in the truth. But those who obey God's word truly show how completely they love him. That's how we know we are living in him. Those who say they live in God should live their lives as Jesus did. Then look at John 14. If you love me, obey my commandments. So if we put these two scriptures together, we see the progression very clearly. To know him is to love him. You know, that's not true of all of us. The more you know me, you might not love me more. <laughs> but I guarantee the more you know God, the more you will love him. I guarantee that. To know him is to love him. And then our obedience flows from our love for him, right? So to know him is to love him. To love him is to obey him. And then to obey him is to live as Jesus did. So as we study the miracles of Jesus, that's my prayer for me and for you, is that we will know him more through this study of his word. All right, interestingly, the very first scripture passage you read on day one, if you are a member here or listen to our pastors online, was the scripture they preached on for the entire month of December, right? John 1. Our author, the question of miracles, Jessica, addresses the question of how, why, and who. And I want us to back up and ask the question, what? What is a miracle? And I, this is the only question I'm not going to ask you to share your answer to. I'll ask all the other ones. Mainly because I don't want you to feel bad in a minute if you got it wrong, okay? <laughs> miracle is one of those words that's overused. The, the word that I, what, what did you say is an overused word? Tell me some of your words. Life. Yeah. What, what? Hey. Hey, yeah. Hey. Love. Yeah, I love your shirt. Like, really? Yeah. Awesome. That was my word. That's what I do, too. How can everything be awesome? By its very definition, everything cannot be awesome. Yeah. I wrote, that was my word, too. Awesome. What's your name? Linda. Linda. Good answer. She's awesome. Awesome answer, Linda. All right, yeah. Well, miracle is also one of those words that can be overused. And at best, it's misused. It's a misused word. It can mean simply easy, convenient, or quick, like a miracle drug. But there's a much deeper meaning. Uh, what were your, some of your answers to number four? What's the first word that comes to your mind when I say miracle? What did you say? Happiness. Happiness? Gift. Gift. Blessing. Blessing. Thank you. Thank you. Y'all good? Y'all are a lot more spiritual than I am. I'm just going to tell I need to sit down, shut up, and listen to you. I, you know, I, what? On ice. On ice. Yes. The movie? The movie. See, that's, I didn't like, I wrote Miracle Mile. I know it's also called Magnificent Mile. I wrote uh, the movie about the hockey team. Thank you for coming and, and getting out of your church mode to answer that question. Um, or the Christmas movie. We just did Christmas, right? Miracle on 34th Street. Nobody said that. 
or if you're a reader, the character Mrs. Miracle. But all of y'all were, again, thank you, God, for these coffee. Okay. At the same time, it's somewhat misleading to think of miracles as special things that God does on occasion, things that are really not ordinary. Consider the heavens that we walk under every day declare the glory of God. This is a miracle. Psalm 19 The heavens proclaim the glory of God. The skies display his craftsmanship. Psalm 97, the heavens proclaim his righteousness. Every nation sees his glory. If you want a New Testament passage, look at Romans 1. It tells us no man has excuse because we're all seeing his glory in his creation. By the way, these pictures, the one in the the upper corner is from NASA. The other one is from our dear friend, Jan Kreitz. Remember her? So talented. This is January 1st, 2020, and she shot that picture. I asked her, I said, can I please use your picture? The ladies will, some of the ladies will know you. Say a prayer of thanksgiving for Jan today. It reminds me, again, that miracles really are happening all the time. What are some of the more ordinary things that cause you to marvel? One person. Anything? Come on. What wait? Childbirth. Childbirth in nature? Yes. I thought of childbirth too. I thought now that is a regularly occur- occurring thing, right? A baby's probably being born right now somewhere. And yet what a miracle. I think of Psalm one thirty nine, right? He's the one who's doing that in our womb. But of course, expanding our view of the miraculous to everything, we risk cheapening the word and causing the word to be overused, right? But can we still set aside certain events from the ordinary run of affairs as miraculous? I think so. If you Google miracle definition, you will get 149 million results in 0.48 seconds. I didn't read them all, but I did read several. And some include God or a supernatural power, and others are more broad in scope. I want to read you just one. This was the Cambridge English Dictionary because it does both of those things. It says, quote, an unusual and mysterious event that is thought to have been caused by God. A miracle is also any surprising and unexpected event. Do you see the danger of the word, you know, uh, all about God, a supernatural, or just anything that's a surprise, right? Wow. Wow. So I want us to back up and look at the etymology of the word. And I wrote these down on it because it's really hard to take notes, especially when the word is another language. So the words in another language are already on your handout. But if we look at these root words, I think it helps us lay a good foundation for what, what is a miracle. So if you put those two, the Greek and the Latin together, which is where we get the word miracle, It means that which causes wonder and astonishment being extraordinary in itself and amazing or inexplicable by normal standards. Now, a miracle is also called a sign. So it's from the Greek word, and you see that on the overhead. You also see it on your handout. A miracle is also called a sign, signifying and indicating something beyond itself. This was not from a religious source, by the way. Of all the definitions I read, one seemed most true. Again, I didn't read all 149 million, but I read a lot. And this guy's really stood out. His name is Wayne Gruden. Gruden. And I'm like, well, who's Wayne? Because I just felt like he really hit the nail right on the head. 
It was full of such wisdom and truth. So then I had to Google Wayne. You know, who's Wayne? <laughs> well, Wayne, evangelical theologian, seminary professor, author of over 20 books, general editor of the ESV Study Bible. So if any of you are using the ESV Study Bible, he's the guy who edited that. BA from Harvard, MDiv, and Doctorate of Divinity from Westminster Seminary, and a PhD from the University of Cambridge. I'm like, okay, I'm in good company thinking he got this right. Listen to his definition. A miracle is a, and it's on your handout, is a less common kind of God's activity in which he arouses people's awe and wonder and bears witness to himself. The wonder-working God, this is also on your handout on the back, so don't try and write this down. But that, this author, I want you to listen to this as you're filling in your blanks there. By the way, the handouts are for you to use. You don't have to fill in any blanks if you don't want to. And we're not going to judge you. Maybe you're just that smart and are memorizing it all. Don't need to write down anything. But you know, it has been proven if you write it down in your own hand, writing, you will remember it more which is why the problem in schools today with these kids taking notes straight on their computer, they're not remembering it as well. Prove it. Anyway, all right. This is from The Wonder-Working God by Jared C. Wilson. Again, it's on your handout on the back. What we eventually learn is that in a fallen and broken world, groaning for redemption, the miraculous is the normal. Miracles don't turn things upside down, in other words, but right side up. The miracles speak to this reality, the real heaven, Heaven as it is, breaking in and bringing the light of truth. The miracles present the vision of what every human heart is yearning for. Heaven on earth, can it be? Is this a new way to look at miracles for you? That they're the normal? So if we see, Jared goes on, what if we see miracles not as strange interruptions of the normal world, but miracles as normal interruptions of a strange world. So the world is broken because of sin. Then comes Jesus, bending, it seems, the very laws of nature. And in fact, what if he's straightening them out? It is the world as if it is that is not normal. And miracles exist as great demonstrations of normalizations. Heaven is the place where God's will is done perfectly. This is what Jesus prays for us, for us to pray. What are the miracles then, the, the glimpses of the way the world is meant to be? And in and through Jesus, the kingdom is coming. Now, Wilson's not alone in this view. Here's three other guys, Schreiner, New Testament theology, Bloomberg, and Jesus and the Gospels. We'll read the last one. When our Lord came down to earth, he drew heaven with him. The signs which accompanied his ministry were but the trailing clouds of glory which he brought from heaven, which is his home. That's Benjamin B. Warfield in Hanukkah Miracles. Have you ever again thought of miracles like this before? This thinking sheds new light on as we look at Jesus' miracles together, not just these next five weeks together, but forever as you read God's word and you see the miracles. His miracles, not as strange interruptions of a normal world, but miracles as normal interruptions of a strange world. Heaven on earth, all is well. Back to our study guide. The three questions our author gave us, the how, why, and who, which did she say was the most important? Who? Who? At the end of each day, Jessica writes for us a beautiful prayer in a section entitled Talk with God. 
Our first one is at the end of day one on page 16, and I encourage you to reread the, the two paragraphs immediately preceding that. It begins with this, asking the question, who is this? About the God being the miracles will not only lead to answers, it will lead you to a person. Every single miracle will teach us something about the transcendent God and lead us closer to him. Ah, why do we do Bible studies? Why are we doing this thing? To know him, because to know him is to love him. To love him is to obey him. And then to obey him is to live as Jesus did. Let's look at one other word. Going back to your answers you gave in our word association, what did you say for number two? What was the first word that came to your mind? Cry. Cry? Help? Help? Did y'all, what did y'all think of? You're like, yes, thank you. Me too, and I never, thanks for coming, Kyle. Yeah, um, me too, and I never even seen the show. But I do, I do the game myself. Desperate Housewives. It's like, where did that come from? I don't even, I've never seen the show. I noticed no one said gift on that. Somebody said gift on miracles. One of you answered gift on, but nobody, desperate, gift. I thought of gift. I don't associate desperate and gift together. Listen to the Cambridge Dictionary definition of desperate. Very, very serious or bad. Very great or extreme. Needing or wanting something very much. Seriously, Cambridge? Did you hear how many times very? <laughs> we could do better than that. What about number three? How would you draw desperate? Somebody give me your, your, your description. Just one person. Face crying tears. Crying tears. A face crying tears. The scream snatching out your hair. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. That is desperate. Here's a couple of pictures. Desperate. Let's add some faces to it. As our author went through the Gospels, marking the M in the margin next to every miracle, you remember what she found right next to every, right before every miracle was desperation. And she concludes, desperation always precedes a miracle. Now don't answer this aloud, but have you ever been desperate? Are you desperate right now? You wrote your answer on page 26 of your study guide, and I hope some of you maybe might share that in your groups today. I have been desperate in the past, and I actually am desperate right now for something totally unrelated to what I was desperate about in the past. And when I think of the word desperate, I think of the scripture that meant so much to me that I memorized and clung to about 30 years ago. My husband was uh, doing undercover work for the NSA. Our lives were threatened. His life was threatened. Our children's lives were threatened. We were followed. We were bugged. Um, assassins were interrupted at the airport before they got to us. I was in a desperate place because I had to figure out how to live my day-to-day -day life in faith and not in fear. And God gave me this scripture, Psalm 61. I put it on NLT up here. On your handout, it's in the King James Version. Sometimes it's just best in King James. Oh God, listen to my cry. Hear my prayer. From the ends of the earth, I cry to you for help when my heart is overwhelmed. Lead me to the towering rock of safety, for you are my safe refuge, a fortress where my enemies cannot reach me. Let me live forever in your sanctuary, safe beneath the shelter of your wings, for you have heard my vows, O God. You have given me an inheritance reserved for those who fear your name. He gave me several other scriptures as well um, for daily living. 
but I will forever treasure Psalm 61 for the truth that he is the answer to my desperate times. He himself, God, his very presence in my life and his sure promise that I will be forever present with him. God is the answer to my overwhelmed, desperate heart, regardless of what he does or does not do. God is the answer. Consider three very desperate guys in the Old Testament. This is my favorite Old Testament story, my favorite New Testament story. One of the other teachers is going to get to teach. Um, But this is my favorite Old Testament story, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. This is a Dutch painter's rendition of this story. You can find the whole story in Daniel 3. You probably know it. In briefest of summaries, King Nebuchadnezzar builds a statue and tells everybody, bow down to it. Three God-following men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, refused to do that, even though they knew that if they refused, they would be thrown in a fiery furnace. So they're about to go into the furnace, and this is what the three guys say. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God whom we serve is able to save us. He will rescue us from your power, your majesty. But even if he doesn't, We want to make it clear to you, your majesty, that we will never serve your gods or worship the gold statue you have set up. Now, God chose to save Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, actually by entering the fire with them and then delivering them from the fire. They didn't even smell like smoke. Is that a miracle? Yeah, I would say, absolutely. That is a miracle. But what if God had chosen not to bring them out of the fire in front of King Nebuchadnezzar? What if God would have entered the fire with them and said, well done, guys, let's go home. And he took them straight up to heaven. Still a miracle. Still a miracle. Because it's the presence of God. It's not what he does or doesn't do. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego knew that, and that's why they could proclaim to the king before they ever went in, our God is able but even if he doesn't, in other words, doesn't rescue us from the fire, he'll rescue us from your power. How did he rescue the men from King Nebuchadnezzar's power? Not by rescuing them from the fire, but giving them the strength to stand up and obey the Lord Jesus, right? Anyway, okay, we've got to keep going. <laughs> My favorite story, I wish we could just stay right there, but we've got to keep going. This reminds me of the song, I Need Thee Every Hour. Because it's not just in desperate times. It's not just in a fiery furnace. I put the lyrics, verses 1 and 3, and the chorus on your hand out there. The lyrics were written by a lady, Annie Hawks, years ago, back in the 1800s. And the music and refrain were actually written by her pastor. Do you know this song, I Need Thee Every Hour? This is what Annie says about writing this song. It became highly popular way back then hit all the hymnals, and is still sung today. And this is what she said. One day, as a young wife and mother of 37 years of age, I was busy with my regular household tasks during a bright June morning. Suddenly, I became so filled with the sense of nearness to the Master that wondering how one could live without him, either in joy or pain, these words were ushered into my mind. The thought at once, taking full possession of me, I need thee every hour. Notice, I wouldn't call this necessarily a moment that any of us would define as desperate. 
This is rather every day, isn't it? She's doing regular household tasks during a bright June morning. That's not a desperate moment. When all five stanzas of her hymn are sung, by the way, this is her only hymn, I believe, that is popular. And she wrote a lot. If you sing all five stanzas, you're going to sing, I need thee, 20 times. Now, desperate times did eventually come to Annie Hawks, as they do to every one of us that walk on the planet Earth. Her husband passed away. And in reflecting on that, she says this. I did not understand at first why this hymn had touched the great throbbing heart of humanity. It was not until long after, when the shadow fell over my way, the shadow of great loss, that I understood something of the comforting power in the words which I had been permitted to give out to others in my hour of sweet serenity and peace. So in all times, desperate times, non-desperate times, I need him every hour. It's really I need him every second, right? From the title of our week's lesson, What Happens When We Run Out? I just used that as my first so what, now what question for you on your handout. What happens when I run out? And I am going to ask you that you do use, even if you haven't used your handout yet, I want you to turn it back over because you've looked at that. And I want us to do an exercise together with Psalm 61 on your handout. This is the actual version I memorized from. And I want you to underline... The rock that is higher than I. Underline shelter. Underline strong tower. Underline thy tabernacle. And underline thy wings. Now go back to the beginning of the passage, and I want you to circle, will I cry? It goes from the first line to the second, so sorry about that. Then circle, lead me to. Circle, I will abide. And circle, I will trust. So what we do is we begin with who God is. All of those that you underlined, notice those phrases. That is our God. A rock, a shelter, a strong tower, a tabernacle, wings. That is our God. So when I focus on him, then it becomes clear to me what my response is to be. That's everything you circled. Do you see it? The will I and I wills. And the lead me to insinuates that I will follow. I will go. I don't mean to make this as easy as one, two, three. I know that desperate times are not like just one, two, three, do this and bada bing, bada boom. And life is good. I know that. So that's not what I'm saying here, but I want to give you this principle that God taught me that I still use today. I am using it today. First, go to God. There's a, you know, in a desperate time, there's a tendency, and I think we've all known people, even if we have done it ourselves. In a desperate time, there's, you either go to God or you go away from him. Nobody stands still. Do you know what I mean? So go to God. And there's a lot of ways to go to God, but prayer is a surefire way to go to God. And you know what? If you don't know what to pray, first of all, the New Testament tells us the Holy Spirit will help us, but also go to the Psalms and start praying some of the Psalms. There's a lot of desperation in the Psalms. All right, go to God. Pray to God. 
That's how the scripture starts, by the way, in Psalm 61. Hear my cry, O God, attend unto my prayer. Right? From the end of the earth will I cry unto thee. That's prayer. Just don't forget, prayer is talking and listening. Sometimes we think prayer is talking to God. Prayer is communicating with God. So that means you also need to listen as you go to God in prayer. The second thing, I will abide. Stay with him. So go to him and then stay with him. And third, I will trust in the covert of thy wings. Trust him. So go with him. Stay with him. And trust him. Why? Because I know him. I know him to be faithful and true and loving and able. I trust him. Now, you may not be in a desperate situation today like Annie when she wrote the song. She was not in a desperate situation, but she was in preparation time. Maybe that's what, where you are. And so you're learning who God is right now. To be prepared, not to walk to God, but to run to God in prayer. Perhaps your desperate situation is not a life or death matter, but it's desperate nonetheless. Same principles apply. Go to him. Stay with him and trust him. Perhaps your desperation is a life or death matter. Maybe there's a physical illness that you or a loved one is facing. Same principle. Go to him. Stay with him. Trust him. Perhaps your desperation is a life or death matter of eternal significance. Maybe there's a loved one that you're praying for that will come to know Jesus. Same thing. Go to him. Stay with him and trust him. Now over the next five weeks, we're going to look at several miracles of Jesus. And some weeks we look at a lot of them in one week. This week we just had one. And so that what that allowed our author to do is spend days two through five really taking the miracle from Scripture phrase by phrase. So I'm not going to repeat her. I will recommend to you the book she actually quotes from. Um, again, it's on the back. You don't need to write this down. It's at the bottom of your handout. Timothy Keller's Encounters with Jesus. As a matter of fact, she uses a lot of his material in her book. Um, he devotes all of chapter four to this miracle. If you're interested, this is my copy, but the library, church library has this excellent book. Can't recommend it enough. So why did Jesus turn water into wine as his first miracle, right? He could have done anything. He could have raised somebody from the dead, at least healed somebody, right? Maybe walk on water. He did all those things. Why water into wine is the first miracle? Tim Keller says, Jesus Christ says, I'm the Lord of the feast. In the end, I come to bring joy. That's the reason my calling card, my first miracle, is to set everyone laughing. Now, Keller's words made me think of three scriptures right away, and they're on your hand out there. John 15, I've told you, this is Jesus speaking, I've told you these things so that you will be filled with my joy. Yes, your joy will overflow. You can read John 10, 10 later on your, oh wait, I, I can't just read scripture. So the context, if you looked at the context of that John 15, Jesus has been talking to his disciples, telling them a whole lot, because see it says these things, but well, what are these things you should want to know? So these things, he's told them, I go to prepare a place for you. And he tells them, when it's ready, I'll come and get you. Which, by the way, is what a bridegroom says to a bride back in Jesus' day. That's exactly what the bridegroom would say to his betrothed. Then he goes on, he gives them the promise of the Holy Spirit. He talks about the vine and the branches. And then immediately before this verse, he talks about the connection between love and obedience. Go figure. And then he says these things. 
Okay, all right. So now I've done, done that. Now we got to just move, move, move. All right. Uh, there, I, I put an Old Testament scripture on there too because I do like the looking at Old Testament and New Testament. Same God, same principles, right? Now, one of my favorite parts of every wedding is when the music changes and the mother of the bride stands up and then everybody else stands up. I like to look at the groom. You know what I'm talking about? I love his face. That moment when he first sees her, it's so tender. It's like takes his breath away. This is what I'm talking about. You look up here. This is from Tim Keller's book. First, every time God chooses a metaphor to help us see him better, it also shows us how he sees us. If he is like our bridegroom, then if you give yourself to Jesus in faith, it means he must really delight in us. Do you know what the bride looks like to the bridegroom as she walks down the aisle? She wears the most beautiful garments and jewels, and when he lays his eyes on her, he is absolutely delighted in her, and he wants to give her the world. Could it be that he loves his own like that, that he delights in you like that? Yes, he does. How different would your life be if you lived in moment-by-moment existential awareness of that? As I read Tim Keller's words, I thought of Zephaniah 3.17. I put it on your handout. I don't want you to look at your handout, though. I want you to look at the screens as I read it for you. For the Lord your God is living among you. He is a mighty Savior. He will take delight in you with gladness. With his love, he will calm all your fears. He will rejoice over you with joyful songs. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will exult over you with loud singing. This is how he sees you. Wow, Jesus loves you. So what now, Lord? I I took Tim Keller's question and just personalized it for us. How different would my life be if I lived in moment-by-moment existential awareness of that, and that being that God loves me and delights in me like a groom for his bride. Can I share a sweetness of Jesus moment with you? Probably not. Um, so, no. Yes. yes. So, this is the sweetness of Jesus. When I first did this lesson, it was back in the fall, and the very next weekend, Ken and I were doing the music for a dear friend's daughter's wedding. Then when I sat to write this lecture, I sat down on a Monday morning to write this, and the weekend before, uh, the night before we had flown back from a wedding in Arkansas where we had also served at that wedding. Now it makes it sound like we do weddings all the time. You people, that's our only two, I think, for the entire year. And God put it right in the middle of me studying and writing this. That's the sweetness of Jesus. Because as I sat there in both weddings, thinking about, this is how Jesus loves me, the way that groom loves that bride, and gave me such hope and anticipation for the wedding feast of the Lamb that is sure to come, right? Okay, we got to get back on the track right here. (laughs) All right, 
I do hope you made it all the way through. This I know is a lot more homework than what you had last semester. If you didn't make it all the way through, go back and finish week one before you start week two. Day five is entitled, Do Whatever He Tells You. Now, in a word, what is do whatever he tells you? One word. Obey. 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 Just do it. <laughs> now, Dan Wilden, by the way, he's the founder of the ad agency and the author of the Nike campaign that came up with this over 30, 33 years ago. And he said he actually got the, uh, the, the idea from a man by the name of Gary Gilmore. Does anybody know Gary Gilmore? He was a convicted criminal, and he said, let's do it to the firing squad immediately before they shot him. I think it came from Mary. Because Mary says, just do it. Isn't that what Mary says? Just do it. I just want us to remember, as we go through this whole study, We've already said that the focus is not obedience. We don't want to get our focus wrong. Our focus is on who God is. In other words, I can just do it. I can obey him because I know him, because I love him. And that's why I <coughs> obey him. Regardless of what he does or does not do, I obey him. So focus on knowing God. Not because obedience isn't important, but because knowing him is the pathway to obedience. I am praying, Hosea 6, 3, for all of us. Oh, that we might know the Lord. Let us press on to know him. He will respond to us as surely as the arrival of dawn or the coming of rains in early spring. What's the focus? Oh, that we might obey him. No, look. What are we pressing on to do? To know him. I left you with on your handout. I, I just had to give you this in writing and not make it be anything you had to take notes on. This, again, is from Jared's book, Jared Wilson's book. And he goes through what the different miracles teach us. I know there are people watching from other, uh, listening from other places that won't have the handout, so I am going to read it, if that's okay with you. Jesus' miraculous control of nature reveals his glory as sovereign master. His miraculous healings reveal his glory as creator and restorer. His miraculous deliverances reveal his glory as Lord and Savior. And his miraculous raisings from the dead reveal his glory as the eternal God. All of the powerful signs of Christ point primarily to Christ. All of the miracles benefit others, but they are all self-referential. The point of the mighty deeds is the proclamation of the mighty God and his kingdom. Again, by Jared Wilson. Jesus performed many miracles. And in the last week of our study together, we're going we're gonna to study Jesus, the grand miracle. Because he is the grand miracle. Let's pray together. Father, help us not lose sight. Begin focusing on the wrong thing. The miracle of Jesus are signs pointing us to the miracle worker who is the miracle himself. Oh, that we might know you, Lord. Let us press on to know you as we study your word. You're so good to us. We love you. Amen. You are dismissed.